This is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. And Chris from Deeply Dapper. And it's time to... Chicka 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 uh, chow oh. jam. I'll stretch, well, okay. I'll stretch, run back it. No thanks. <laughs> Release the... Kraken! on the road. No, we're, we're too young. We're excess baggage. Listen, are you kids willing to stick together and pull yourselves out of a hole? You bet. Sure. I've got an idea. Our folks think we're babes in arms, huh? Well, we'll show them whether we're babes in arms or not. I'm going to write a show for us and put it on right here in Seaport. It'll be the most up-to-date thing these hicks around here have ever seen. So, Chris, yes. here we are. We just completed a show together, live, together. We're in Portland, Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> Oregon. That's how they pronounce Oregon in, in Maine. It's super weird. We were, at a, we were at Shutter Island, and they were talking about Portland, and there was an old couple in front of us in the theater, and he's like, that doesn't look like Maine. She's like, no, the one in Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> and I love that. So we're here because we had an occasion to do a show together. Indeed. It was the Heroes and Villains Walker Stalker. No, wait. <laughs> that show imploded, took everyone's money, right at Christmas time, yes. destroyed the lives of hundreds of people. Yes, that's that's merely a dumpster on fire right now. So, uh, you've done the show before. I have not, and this is the Wizard World you've Portland. You've done Wizard World Portland? I sure haven't. How did I think you had? Because we talked about it a couple huh. of times, and that's how your brain works. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I would have sworn that you'd done one of these shows before. Nope. I have uh, done Wizard Sack before we stopped doing Wizard Sacks. Yeah. I, I because Wizard, Wizard, Wizard Sack Sacks. was a Wizard Sack. <laughs> you see what we did. It's a little gender specific. Sorry to be so uh, yeah. so basic about it. But anyway, it was unpleasant. Um, and also rapey. And so we stopped doing it. But here we are uh, in Portland, Oregon. Oh, I was going to show you the grapest video. <laughs> so the problem is I like to come to Oregon. Or Oregon, <laughs> people here. But if I only do four or five shows a year, and Heroes and Villains implodes, not only did I lose the San Jose show that I routinely wasn't able to go to, but mm-hmm. also one half of my Portland time. Indeed, and, which is unacceptable, right? And so, on the basis of your assurances that it was a great show and everything would go well, I said, "Hey, I'm, let's do it." I made no such assur- assurances. So, um, <laughs> we had some thoughts. I mean, the the. Um, Spoiler alert, the show was a challenge, but it, this is not a gloom and doom podcast about it. No. Uh, we actually had had a fine time. But things, choices were made, things yeah. were done. Yes. There were and... made, choices were made. Uh, <laughs> something was afoot at the local Circle K. Games. We knew that there were problems when uh, guest lineup wasn't really announced. We saw no marketing for the show. Yeah, that was, I think that was certainly a detriment right. this time. I mean, leading up into the show, I thought that was odd. And then also... As I've said before, when we talked about the Bay Area wizard garbage fire, <laughs> if the co- cosplay community <coughs> don't know about a show, yeah, something is terribly wrong. Because marketing should be about trying to bring the masses, mainstream people who might be interested in coming. Right. Marketing isn't about appealing to con fanatics and cosplayers the who right already crowds. have you on their radar. Yeah. Right? So... When I reached out and found out that 
several cosplay friends and repeat clients here mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest had either not been aware of the show or had other commitments. I knew that we had a problem. Yeah, it's surprising when you know somebody that has hit every show you've been to that's like, mm. it, it was overwhelmingly a meh attitude about it. Well, and uh, two different people that I know have told me that there is a fairly active uh, boycott of Wizard. So I, I feel like that's been active for quite some sure, time. Sure, but, but they talked about a big problem last year. They said that two years ago it was okay. Last year there were problems, and a number of people boycott this year. Which now, I think is, which I do think is true. I also think it's funny because we did better last year than the year yeah, before. Right. Well, none of this equates to sales, and none of this even equates to interest at the table. It's talking about whether um, those hardcore fans would come or not. Right. And we right. did see it was conspicuously low on active cosplayers, and it was the like, type, shockingly right, and the type of people at the table. Who are excited? I mean, you had your usual staple, but I mean, mm-hmm. I saw order of magnitude less of the type of repeat customer. First of all, repeat customer. I saw a few right. of, of my repeats, which is great, but um, I saw a lot less of the types that run over or the type that saddle up and are getting ready to roll up their sleeves and dive in. Yeah, like they're excited to be there. What I saw was mostly mainstream type folks who were keeping their distance. Yeah, um, and they that were told intimidated me intimidated by your seven thousand prints. Well, sure, and um, it, well, and that told me that the type of crowd we had was a more general audience crowd that also was a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable because of their being pocket poor right now, or having a little uncertainty in in terms of the economy and the politics and everything else that's going on. That's already going to affect it. Right. But that was the majority of the people I saw. It was to stay a little distant from the table and not want to engage particularly. And you and I have that style where we're bringing people in by greeting them and we're not right. we're not hostile about it there's no, no hard sell whatsoever but usually even if it's you know a casual go casual con goer if i'm like it's not a hard sell table just come and look around no problem then they get comfortable and they'll get start and then they'll dive in right uh but this weekend i saw a lot of like they just were really hesitant to they were afraid to even make eye contact yeah and um yeah yeah, this so, is one of the first shows I've done since we've had our game that I've had like room to exhibit it. Right. That after giving the spiel, no one has like dove deeper, kind of wanted to see how it plays, that kind right. of thing. And that's a really specific crowd that seemed completely absent. I had a few people after I gave the spiel, they bought it. Yeah. But I've had a lot of people at other shows when I've been given the spiel be like, okay, show me how it plays kind of sure, thing. Sure, sure. And it wasn't, it was that nobody was spending time at the booths, really. Yes. I mean, we saw the people with the soap and candles that dove in and smelled every single one, but that's a totally different thing. It's just, nobody was doing the deep dive on the art, nobody was spending time with the game, I only had like five or six people pick up the theme book and browse through it. Right. I right. It was a very casual audience. And I, I agree. I feel like they were reluctant to come forward if they weren't planning on buying. Yep. Well, uh, one, one dad, I showed him and his son the mechanics of the game. And then mm-hmm. I said, and you were somewhere else. And I said, you were on the floor <laughs> t- <laughs> taking a whiskey nap crying, crying. on your side <laughs> trying to find the best position to minimize snoring but no uh, I, had, I went through the, the basics of the game and then said you know but I haven't played it since the beta mm-hmm. and 
there's some fine tuning that's happened since then. When you come back, you know, you'd be able to give it another go through. Yeah. And he thanked me, and he walked away, and then he came back, and that was the last one I think I saw you. Maybe one of the last ones I saw you sell. Cool. Dad and his son. So yeah. he came back and got the benefit of another round with you, and you have details that I didn't remember about the game that you yeah. were telling him. Yeah. Um, the gimmick of telling him about, you know, like the lightning and the switch and all the classic right. imagery that's part of the, how is that cohesive? <laughs> I was describing it more tactically, you know, <laughs> look at the points on the cards and then put, get the hand that's like the other hand and then you'd steal someone else's hand and shut up. So anyway, <laughs> why are they selling me? <laughs> yeah, I should have hired you. I didn't even think of it that way. But I had more than other shows. I had more, um, walk up interest in the post human game. Cause if you're, yeah. if your reason for being here among you're making money, but your reason for being here and in specific splitting your table up mm-hmm. is to move, get interest in your new games. Yeah, and, Theme, and new and stuff we've got coming out. Right. Yeah. And my purpose of all my stuff is to get people interested in the game. Right. More than any of the other shows that I did this year, I had eyeballs on the game. Yeah. I had seven solid walkthroughs of the system and how it worked and everything, you know, enough detail where they're asking questions mm-hmm. and maybe three or four more that were more the casual review, um, discussion for someone who doesn't really game, right? right. Um, zero sales from that, though. I was they all walked away. That. No, they all walked away. Um, three or four of them were really adamant about saying they were going to come to the website and they were mm-hmm. being very clear about that, and they may. Um, but, but the positive of that is that they were seven to ten. Mm-hmm. different gamers that wanted the whole story and, yeah. and expressed interest enough because I read them. If they don't seem to want to know, I don't keep going. I have a right. pitch that starts generic and then works to uh, greater levels of detail. <laughs> and, and I always ask them, you know, do you, are you a gamer and what kind of games do you play and are right. you a judge? And, and that helps me tune what I'm telling them about whether it matters. Oh, you're a casual gamer. Oh, you're not a gamer, but you like superheroes. Well, right. this is why this game is so great. You don't have to have gaming experience to play. Right. Oh, you're a judge, but oh, it's hard to get those players on the same day. Am I right? Well, here's the quick and dirty, uh, you know, conflict uh, generator, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I can fine tune. Oh, you're a player. Oh, well, here's. Did you know you can cook the cook the books and make a super character, or you can do fully random, and it's all in the game <laughs> right. system. So it was it was nice to have that kind of an audience. Um, even if they were still pocket poor today, yeah, um, they had enough interest to stay with me and keep talking about the game and even ask questions. Yeah, so I couldn't cool. ask for much more other than them buying it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. but I mean, you know, from a marketing standpoint, that's great. Right? That's <laughs> what I want because I would say, with only one exception, they all said that they come to Rose City as well. So that means that there's a chance, and I'm usually pitching for like, you know, hey, get the book now, and maybe you'll get some source books the next right. show. Right. At this, in this case, it was more, you know, oh, they don't have the money now, or they're not ready, but they want to do, they want to read more about it, or talk to me about it, and oh, you're going to be at Rose City too. Yeah, so, yeah. For better or worse, that was a thing. Um, so, but we did see some friends. We saw some people yeah. that we see at shows, not just other vendors. But yeah, we saw some regulars and some people that aren't even regulars anymore because they've been to our table so often. That right. They know what they do and talk to them and see how things are going. And that's one of the things I love about Portland is it's that there's a certain crowd there that's just this, like, cool, like, chill, loyal attendees. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. There just weren't many of them. (laughs) I mean, it was... I was joking with some people, particularly cosplayers that I would talk to, that 
the upside, I would just start with that. Mm-hmm. The upside is you're not being elbowed and you can breathe and it's not you're not overheating. Yeah, because true. Got to aim positive, right? And that is true. It was empty halls compared to most shows. Well, and the, the air circulation in that hall is awful too. Yeah. So. so in that sense, I mean, I didn't overheat and I didn't have I didn't see the, the general anxiety that people have mm-hmm. on the other side of the table when it's too crowded. Yeah. I mean, they were people who were there to look. They had plenty of room to do it. Yeah, there was no problem with overcrowding. That's a certainty. I found it. I found it interesting that um, you know the last wizard show I did, which was the Bay Area one. We mm. talked about it before that it was um, it was a real hot mess. But the there were definitely more people here mm-hmm. than at that one. There were more people on Friday night here than there were the entirety of the Bay Area show. But the state the sales were very very similar. My net sales, they're both poor shows for me, bottom three, but the sales were the same. So that means, statistically, that means it was much worse here because there was that many more people who were not investing. Right. Right. But, you know. It was just not a spending show. It It was interesting. They waited a really long time to announce celebs. Uh, I don't think they announced the first one until after Christmas. And it's, what, January 26th now? Sure, sure. So a month ago they started announcing celebs, and somebody told me they had a hard time getting celebs. I don't know how accurate any of that is necessarily, and that's not my place to judge one way or the other, because that could be snark, that could be accurate, it could be the time of year. It's kind of a weird time of year. People haven't gotten their tax returns yet. It's early enough in the season that it's still sort of holiday e. But there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's a there's a for and against argument towards mm-hmm. the location or the timing of many shows. Yeah, I thought that Thanksgiving weekend was a really challenging time to have a show for the for the Bay Area one, but at the same time, it could be people are hunting for Christmas gifts, right? Or they're busy with Thanksgiving. So either way, right. I don't know. There's an argument for it. I would say, I mean, we talked to a lot of vendors who are outraged. Like yes. They're never doing this again, and they're pissed off, and they want to, you know, punch an organizer in the face. Kind of. Yeah. Thing. There's some vo- vo- very vocal, um, uh, dissatisfied vendors. But agreed. But I think, you know, not to be too much of an apologist, but we've talked about this. It's not, it's not easy putting these shows on, and there I are can't wild even cards. Fathom. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think that there are very clearly organizational things they could have done if they mm-hmm. had been able to spend, if they were spending a little bit more time and planning. Yeah. They they really couch it on, oh, well, we don't know the celebrities. I asked about next right. year. She said, well, I mean, we don't know the celebrity lineup until a couple weeks before the show. And I thought, no. And also, other shows start advertising early and they add celebrities to right. the ticket. They don't just do nothing to the last minute. So that's yeah. not really a good argument. But, you know, it is true, though, that if a celebrity changes, it affects... Mm-hmm. They can't control that and it's a huge blow. Yeah. Bay Area... Momoa and a few others left. They dropped out a week before the show. Right. So, you know. Well, Carrie I mean, always was supposed to yeah. be this show and he dropped. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's it's a challenge. And I think I, I heard that in the morning meeting, which we did not go to because we got up too late. Well, we just don't do uh, it. We just don't do it. Um, that they are shifting some of their focus for the rest of the year 
towards doing custom shows, like reunion shows, like mm-hmm. all Buffy cast kind of thing. And I think yeah. that's actually a smart move. I, you have to di- differentiate yourself in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes it more interesting than just yeah. a generic Comic-Con, if that's, that's a problem they've had. One of the things that made Heroes and Villains Walker Stalker stand out totally. is that they had these shows that were focused on a very specific fandom. And if you can do something special with that, you can do something really cool with it. And I think that that's actually one way to revitalize certain aspects of the industry. Sure. But the specialized, yeah, the nostalgia-driven, uh, finer-edged... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, and there's so many op- like options for that kind of thing, too. There's movies, there's old-school horror films, and obviously, like, like Buffy, you're probably not going to get Sarah Michelle Gellar... Oriana's is probably not going to show up, but the rest of them aren't so big that you're not going to get that crowd. Right, right, right. And I think that that type of thing is, it's a great way to pull on people's nostalgia, and especially, like, if you're talking photo ops and, like, signatures that you're signing one thing with all of their SIGs, that's a sweet deal. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's a really good point for the people that want to get, the the collector that wants to get all of those signatures on yeah. the same one yeah yeah i think you know i i mean my biggest i i figure you know there were problems but there were also some good things i think my biggest complaint was on was at the very beginning of the show mm-hmm. it wasn't just the the fact that the load in was at the wrong place it was in the corner and yeah it was hard to get to it yeah. they didn't advertise it well but more so because who cares once you're yeah. in you're in yeah load in's always in a mess the biggest frustration i had is that we paid like I put money down on those tickets within the first two minutes of them being released, mm-hmm. predicated on their their pitch being that the sooner you pay, you have uh, first come, first serve choice in tables. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything I've learned over the last several years of doing this with you is that I'm made or broken by placement. Yeah. yeah. And so I didn't want any more of this in the back facing the wrong way. Right. I have no hope. My only hope is eyeballs, right? Right. And so the one frustration I have when we walked right up is... We're, they've adjusted, we picked the tables in the very front of the alley, we advertised ourselves as front mm-hmm. of the alley, center. Center, front of the alley, which is what we picked. Right. And then, they completely changed the layout when we got there. Yeah, it The was map that we looked at... Very different, yeah. When the map we looked at, when we picked our seats, we were right in the front of the, set, front of the alley, and we're facing the, what was the open area, mm-hmm. and the entry. Right. And then we get there, and it shifted over so that my side of it was directly up against the doors with mm-hmm. a corridor between us. That's it. Yeah. Right up to it. And then they didn't open the doors. Right. Because they didn't want to deal with the security. Right. Those the were the... There. Yeah, they were... Even had they opened the doors, it would have been an exit. And that wouldn't have been ideal either way. So. No, but but they could have had those as... They don't have to be exits. Mm-hmm. They could have those as a general entrance, and then people can come in and out. Uh, the way Wizard World does it now, though, they only have the one entrance because they've yeah. got their karaoke stage set up yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it just ended up being that you're, we were basically first come, but we're right up against a wall. Yeah. Um, I still think we were but, in a pretty good spot. I'll tell you what. We looked at those other options that they gave us, mm-hmm. and you know they're okay. When I look at the those those tables towards the back that we could have changed to, or the oh, booths yeah. that we could have changed to, they were they had All less traffic than we did. Yeah, they were terrible. Yeah. So I think in the end we did just fine. Yeah, there's a, there's a part of me that almost thinks that depending on what the options are, right in the middle of Artist Alley is almost better 
than yeah. ending up on one of those weird offshoot areas. Because at least then you know you're in the middle of it and people are going to be able to find you. Well, I think that's one thing that we'll want to do differently next year. Because, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert again, we re-upped. We did re-up. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, because we do this to hang out mm-hmm. more than anything. But um, I think we still want to be, hopefully, I think we still want to be at the front. Mm-hmm. But what I want to do is get as close to the spine. If we can. And that's yeah. the thing that we did not have a sense of in the first map. Right. Um, and I think that we could, I think we'd be better positioned because I do think that people tend to tend to aim for the spine and then fork out. Mm-hmm. And I think even if you're in the front, if you're too far to one side or the other, you're off the path. Yeah, you're almost better off being in the middle of the alley somewhere instead. Well, and looking at how Wizard actually set this space up, which is very different than Rose City does, mm-hmm. they have some features at the back of the alley with some big signage yeah our side of the alley there was, was right up there. they were right up against a minor concession and then this huge sports gaming that had thing maybe seven people there at right given time. and they were just blasting the speaker so, empty. so there really wasn't anything <laughs> there and i used to i would see people like kind of stumble past us looking over there thinking that something was going on and they would get around the corner and see that it's just a big screen and yeah, there was like a gaming competition. A tumbleweed rolling by. Right, right, and... <laughs> right. So I think that placement adjustment would be great. Yeah. But um, a couple of things that I would say that were very positive, besides the fact that we got some good talking points with, with clients who were interested, mm-hmm. um, I, had, um, I had the type of return client that's really excited to share... This, their celebrity experience and what their interests are and how and they know that I know that they like those and mm-hmm. they're they're uh, including me in their enthusiasm. Um, I like that because they're comfortable enough to be part of that, you know, to 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 bring me along that journey a little bit. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and in one case, uh, she was very excited. She's a real big fan of the the character uh, Winter Soldier, Bucky, Bucky oh, yeah. Barnes. And so when another con friend showed up today dressed as Winter Soldier, and he's mm-hmm. tall, he's a big, tall Winter Soldier, I was able to plug those together, or attempt to anyway, and I thought you that was fun. plug them together, huh? Well, not in a puffin kind of way, but the point is <laughs> that, uh, you know, it, it's neat when you can, when you can, you can um, uh, bridge two, two different people's interests together. And, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I really liked is that uh, next to me was... Third rail brings us together. Even as it divides us. Um, so, Randy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm acting uh, like I know who you're talking about. Randy. He's next door neighbor. Eberlin. Oh, oh, uh, next door. Okay. Yeah, he's, so he's a, he's a, a veteran uh, comic artist. And he is. Creator of Carnage and yeah. some other stuff. He has many, 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 many volumes of Spider-Man. Web of Spider-Man, G.I. Yeah. Joe, a lot of other books that he did. Um Anyway, he was the kind of uh, veteran uh, artist. You don't know when you're sitting next to a veteran artist whether they're going to be the type that want to be there yeah. or don't have yeah, an you attitude about you. Never know what you're going to end up with. Are yeah. they going to have a trouble? Have trouble with you having being a small press artist or a fan artist? Yeah. Um, do they have attitude? Are they going to have a line of people in front of your table? Mm-hmm. Um, and he and his wife were such good eggs. They really were delight. Really yeah. friendly. He has an he has like a camp, an art camp. <laughs> and so he gets all of his former um, publishers to send a bunch of freebies that they use in the camp. That's awesome. Um, teaching kids how to draw comics and things. And, That's so cool. And, uh, you know, it was just really great to see him and his wife interact with both regulars that they always see. This is a, ho- a local show for them. Yeah, yeah. But also just um, seeing that it wasn't just older fans coming to the veteran artists, which is what you usually right. see. 
It also had some younger fans that he did work for because of the nature of his characters. Because he's and he's really smart to 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 keep that art thing going with younger fans too. Right. That they would know him for things other than his classic comic work, which I think is really smart. There, at least one person I saw came by and was talking to him about the whole camp thing and everything. Oh, I totally. That's, yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I thought that. I thought that it was. It just reminded me how your con experience can be really positively or negatively impacted if you have, um, you know, a jerk neighbor or a nice neighbor. Yeah, yeah. I always I try was, to be a nice neighbor. I'm glad that I, I was sandwiched between it. you and my wife, so oh, yes. I was doomed. Poor but <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think you know, all in. I mean, there's you can always find something that um, that you don't. There's plenty of things to complain about at a show like this, yeah. but. There's not any real point to flogging a dead horse one way or another, and unless there's something specific that you can really like pull from and learn from, there's no point in complaining about it because it's done. Totally, and, and I, yeah, I have that sure. same attitude about the people that pack up early and take off. Oh, if you've you've paid the price to get there. You've put in the time to set up. The shortest part of the con sometimes is just being there for those three days and it hurts everyone around you. It really does. It's a very and selfish thing to do. I get that you're having a bum con and sometimes there's excuses for it but most of the time they're just like man, I didn't make as much money as I thought I'm out. Well, and yeah, and there's an emotional there's an emotional response to it. Artists are sensitive but also mm-hmm. there's a lot of ego too. There is. And you could tell the ones that are just insecure and are taking it personally like, yeah. from the ones that are like I'm too good for this. I got other things I could do. Yeah. And then they just pack up and it hurts everybody. And it doesn't just hurt it doesn't just hurt the other vendors. Mm-hmm. It even hurts the the fans and the participants because you're you're weakening their general enjoyment of the experience. enjoyment. When they see empty tables, it mm-hmm. makes them feel like, wait, am I a sucker? Yeah, right. Yeah, and you know, I don't know. I just think it's selfish. So yeah, I'm not a fan so. of that. Yeah. So, but you know, anyway, it was fun enough. We we had some fun experiences around the show. We, we did. We. Well, we had pizza the first night and yep. looked at Disney the, photos. Yep, per the routine. And we always get this pizza yep, from this the one place. The usual. And then we went to Alias, the Tiki Bar, with our buddy John and Ryan. Alibi. Yeah, Alibi. Alibi. Yeah. Why yeah. do I keep saying Alias? Because they're very similar and they sound the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We got Tiki mugs and also ate uh, sort of Polynesian slash Hawaiian food. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like... I think the tiki mugs were like seventy four dollars or something. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> saw some saw some friends, and then uh, and then tonight we tried out a new uh, Mexican place, which was which was good, and it's close by to our hotel, which is a great find. Old school, cheap, twenty four seven Mexican food. And if you hit all the, if you think of all the metrics that we measure our success at a show together, it's did we have the 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 whiskey? Yes. Yes. Did we have the pizza? Yes. Yes. Uh, you know. Uh, did we have donuts? We almost didn't. Almost didn't. And then someone came and gave us some donuts, just like, you know, like I was going around giving bagels the day before. Jason came and gave save on yeah, that one. Yep, gave us some donuts, and so there we are. So I think we could say we hit all of Mark's. Yeah, there was there was much snoring. Nope. Exhaustedly in the, the room every night. Well, you guys. We well, generic, boring <laughs> continental breakfast every morning. <laughs> so many cold, cold eggs and weird... Guacky, guacky smears. Yeah, I didn't fancy. touch the guacky smear. <laughs> I had the 
the weird assembly line pancakes instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, your pancakes today were an improvement off of the previous two days. They were notably larger. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but they, they cranked up the pancake experience. You wanted it more. Yeah. <laughs> so that was oh, Wizard okay. World Portland. Um, we like being in this town, and we like doing it together. Indeed. Um, so we'll be back for Rose City in September. Yeah. Which is a then, very different show. And then Wizard World Portland... 2021. If there January. is a 2021. <laughs> yeah, if we make it to that year, we'll yep. be here. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, cool. So that was our post-mortem on Wizard World Portland. They have a picture of it on the um, Wizard World page, but it's not very good. You know I started the recording already. Oh, good. Pixie the unicorn. You can eat a bowl of dicks. How, how do you think it gets the unicorn? Oh. Hey! All right. <laughs> In our next segment... Let us do a robot review of a movie we saw that's not a movie. It's a TV show. Don't try to confuse things. What do we see? What are we going to talk about? Are you talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> I have spoken. I have spoken. <laughs> Were we not Hey, recording? Chris. Come on. Here we are today in our next segment, a robot review of a film we both loved, except it wasn't a film, but we did both love it, and we had no How questions. How you know I loved it? We had no doubts that it was going to be amazing, and there's going to be no negative commentary whatsoever about the show. Except for one episode. Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Oh, man, season six? Season six. Oh, good stuff. So, we... So 1989. We had, we had many... <laughs> uh, we had many shows that we watched over the course of the holidays, and many more that you didn't watch because of laziness and <laughs> malaise that we can't talk about yet. But one we can talk about is... Malaise! Malaise! <laughs> the Mandalorian. How's malaise? Malaise! <laughs> so, The Mandalorian. Yes. Tell me everything about it. <sighs> it's the story about a man. All right. So did you, you went in with some trepidations. You didn't even let me finish. That was enough. I mean, it really is. That is the elevator pitch for that show. There's a man. There's a, it's a story about a man, DeLorean. That's right. Cruz and Moss Espa and my DeLorean. So uh, you had some, uh, it's difficult to be a peacetime Mandalorian. Well, I got into it way later than everybody else because I didn't have Disney Plus because I'm not one of the privileged few. The world's smallest space violin plays for you. Six dollars a month or whatever it was. It was just way too much. I needed cheese. (laughs) (laughs) And you are apparently well stocked. So now... Tell me about your trepidations in getting into the show. Because you had some concerns. Well, anytime you're really into something, yes, I'm hesitant. Well, you're only hesitant because you want to be contrarian. Well, not just that, but also, if you're excited about something, I know how long you can talk about it. And you need ammunition in order to interact with me in a positive I, manner. I, I will sit down with you to talk about something. You're like, hold on. Let me get my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I barely, I only have like 10 pages of notes. <laughs> Off of the first episode, yeah. Yeah, that is. Actually, it's episode one. So, uh, but now I guess what I'm asking though is, it, you know. He has headers, you guys. I do have headers. What I'm asking though is, were you interested in the premise? We talked about it before, like oh, yeah. we were excited about it. Oh, yeah. But Absolutely then, interested. You in know. It. I, well, okay. 
I'm not interested in Mandalorians generally. Uh, Boba Fett's never done anything for me. He He's was he was always Ben's thing. Uh-huh. Um, I am curious about the whole Clone War armor versus Mandalorian armor uh-huh. versus everything else. There, uh-huh. curious where all that falls in. Okay. But um, well, but you brought up an interesting point though, which is that you are not that interested in the Mandalorians because you really have not been exposed to the Mandalorians because. Almost all of the previous canon Mandalorian is wiped away and it was in the books and comics. And then all of the current continuity Mandalorian has been in projects you haven't seen. That famously, does, famously have not, not seen. That does not change the fact that I was uninterested in them. <laughs> uh, maybe it does, though. If you had been exposed, you might have been more. But, that's, but my point, though, is there's a huge segment that's... of the viewing public that went into this not having a firm grasp of what the Mandalorian means other than that's clearly Boba Fett but it's not Boba Fett right Mm -hmm. people who like you hadn't seen cartoons of Star Wars or maybe weren't neck deep in the lore of Star Wars wouldn't have a sense of that and they managed to make this show accessible if you just like Star Wars Mm -hmm. or you just like kind of sci-fi or westerns or all the other things that they brought into it yeah you didn't have there was not the barrier uh for entry to get invested in the show that you had to know all that lore. They did oh, a really good job of making yeah. it that you did not he needed to he was mysterious mm-hmm. to them as that loner, the lone guy with the long big hat. Right. And yeah, I mean if that you worked. look at these like major projects that have come out in the last year, uh, you got Watchmen, Witcher, and Mandalorian. And Mandalorian's the only one that you could walk into without any forethought and no real knowledge of what happened before or after. Right. And they introduce him in a way that's immediately gripping. It's in a world that's well realized and really interesting. In a world. And there's none of this like nonsense like they did with Witcher, where they work different timelines and they expect you to figure it out and then they don't reveal it in an exciting way. Whereas the Mandalorian, like everything that kind of plays out is really well done. Sure. I think, and I think also, it doesn't hurt that we liked the source material. We like True. westerns and yes. an older style of storytelling that's serialized but yeah. very stylized. Yeah. All of, and, you know, between the samurai films and the spaghetti westerns, yeah. we were the target market for all that stuff, even within the context of the Star Wars universe that you have maliciously avoided being consistently knowledgeable about. By not watching the cartoons. Would you like to know? About I will the have you know that I am extremely well versed in on not both the cartoons, the droids cartoon, yes, and sir. the Ewoks cartoon. <laughs> so, uh, thinking about canon and not canon, I think one of the most entertaining things right out of the gate is that they took from the Star Wars Christmas special mm-hmm. the sweet the ass gun. rifle, yeah. that, the, that Boba Fett had. With its like tuning fork the of shock death. rifle, yeah, the tuning yeah. fork of death, man. I love that thing. And when yeah. they when they, he's used it, it's just vaporizing people. Yeah, it's which great. Is, it's it's amazing. Just yeah. So <laughs> I really like the mechanism of the guy walking around who's got the helmet on, and you mm-hmm. they can't you can't interact with him and emote with him in terms of his expressions or anything. He's very <laughs> stoic. He's also got a lot of um, um, conservation of movement. Mm-hmm. He's He's very um, guarded and react- reactive, mm-hmm. but cool. Very controlled. Very controlled. In motions, um, yeah. And that cool factor of that, that stranger that comes in into town and no one knows what to make of him. 
I love it. <coughs> and it, and I think that they played to the strengths of that kind of narrative with this. Yeah, no, um, they did a really good job with that aspect of it. That that episodic, uh, cliffhangery type movie serial yeah. drifter thing. I love the that drifter. Yeah, and and, um, and and they even play in the different episodes. There are the nods to those different types of tropes in those stories. It's yeah, the, you know, it's the gunman that the the, the villagers have recruited to s- save them from. Warring, right. uh, you know, marauders, right? Or it's the you know the gunman that's seduced into settling down before at the last minute changing their mind, right? Or you know, it's the the, the the package that ends up not being what you expect it to the be. Package, right? Or or you must be the one they call the kid. You know, like all of those tropes are active in this. Um, go beat the big beast. Go beat then. the beast. Um, <laughs> ostrich or not? Uh, I also thought. You know, when you looked at this, especially the promo material, and you said, well, this is clearly Boba Fett, but it's not Boba Fett. And that's right. IG-88, but it's not IG-88. And he's right. a bounty hunter, and he can carbon freeze, but he's still not Boba Fett. One of the things I liked is they played up the sort of meta nature of Boba Fett being larger than life to mm-hmm. fandom and not really deserving of it. Yeah. Which is yeah. not to say that Boba Fett was not a, did not have the promise of being a cool character, mm-hmm. but his coolness... Was out of the mystique of him it not was being on screen. Purely visual too. Visual, yeah. and it was all the filler that yeah. people gave it. And then in all the books and other material, they compensated right. and made him into an amazing yeah, because character. On in the film itself, he's I mean he's mildly competent at tracking. Right, that's all he's got. <laughs> right, right. And you know they they played his death for laughs in Empire or in uh, Return of the Jedi, which was an yeah. odd choice. It was, but you know. It didn't really matter how cool you were if someone whacked you from the behind when you're on a when you had a jetpack on, mm-hmm. you might suffer a fate. Perhaps. What I liked <laughs> in The Mandalorian is they played against that imagery of, of Boba Fett being too cool for school mm-hmm. by showing the Mandalorian being really fallible. Yeah. And making yeah. mistakes and being overwhelmed by things. Mm-hmm. He was almost defeated by Jawas. Right. Right. Which was great. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so there were many cases where you saw him struggle. And I think that makes it always a more interesting character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he got, he got shocked right off of a of a of a sand cruiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, but also there were times when he didn't engage in conflict when you otherwise would expect him to because they were there and their only purpose was fodder. Yeah. The the uh, once again the cartoons do explore more um, that some of these species have more to them going on than just. Um, uh, being antagonists, uh-huh. but I like that he proposed that they negotiate with the Tuscan Raiders versus just going right in and yeah. blasting. No, I think right? that was interesting, yeah. Um, but at the same time, his frustration or his uh, his rough-around-the-edges nature is fun. Like, yeah. I like when he's just barely containing himself in having to go through the, the, uh, the, the, the humiliation of the bureaucracy of negotiating with the Jawas who stole his yeah. shit from him, right? Like, yeah. he's just so, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's, like, like that barely contained rage yes. about things. Yes. That, but at the same time, he knows that it's just, you can't just go off killing every Jawa that tears your ship apart. Right. It, Although, but you almost get the sense. Not, but <laughs> Well, you almost get the sense, because he blasted quite a few of them, but you almost get the sense that it's just about efficiency. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's going to take me forever. Yeah, it's going to take me a lot longer to break into this ship and kill all of these guys than it is to do it this way. How cool was it that there were a number of things that uh, uh, Favreau and Filoni and, and 
and Chang um, found exploration in designs that were never really explained and mm-hmm. made them functional in a different way. Like, for example, I love that all those little faceted panels on a, on a Sand Cruiser were, were little secret doors that would oh, open and yeah. close. Yeah. That they would throw junk out. And they were just <laughs> yeah. throwing debris, right? Yeah, they're just full <laughs> of shit in there that they're just pulling out and knocking. Well, and one of my favorite, similarly, one of my favorite design elements was in the first episode when they rationalized that IG, the IG unit's torso mm-hmm. was an axis. No, yeah. And that everything would yeah. spin around the axis except the grenade depart- right. department. I mean, I thought that was such a great idea for taking, yeah. a, taking a design shape that didn't make a lot of sense and turning it into something uh, interesting. Yeah, it made it a lot more functional. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I also think it's interesting that you could tell when Pedro Pascal is in the armor except when, and then from when he's not. Because he has a very specific gait. Hmm. When he's walking, you could see the walk. It's the Pedro Pascal walk. And then sometimes you'd see the posture being similar, but he would not move the same way, and you could tell hmm. it wasn't him. How do you know it wasn't him? Because they've confirmed it wasn't him in all the cases. That there was, He had a stunt double for some scenes, and he had a, a, walk, a walk and talk double in other oh, scenes. Interesting. <clears throat> but, I, but I liked, I could distinctly see his mannerisms in some sequences under that gear. Hmm. I also liked his armor in its original form. I liked yeah. when it's all chrome. Yeah. But I love the idea that he didn't have a sigil and so he was it was very it was very plain. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of working towards um, forming a clan of one, a clan of two. Yeah, I think that is interesting. Yeah. I I think I think his original armor in the first few episodes really hits that Star Wars aesthetic where it really it's does. hodgepodgey and a little beat up, and I really like that look. But at the same time, I thought it was cool that when he had enough Beskar to have his armor made um, and have a full set, it was like the guy that showed up with the brand new car. Yeah. Like, it's so bright chrome. <clears throat> and so it's silly, so, but cool. He walked into that place, and everybody's got the, him as a mark now. And he just walked in, and he was like, "It reminded right. me of Goodfellas, right? Mm-hmm. Don't buy anything, don't do anything, don't spend any money. What are you doing? Return the car, right?" <laughs> so I thought that was very cool. Um, but uh, you know, I, obviously, the elephant in the room is that everyone and their mother has heard about Baby Yoda. Yes, of course, the not child, Yoda, the, the child. child. Um, that's such a thing that for people who didn't get on board, they had to keep it under wraps so they didn't even do merchandising because that couldn't be leaked right um, but, but what a great bait and switch though we talk, you and I talked about mm-hmm. how when we were thinking about the prospects for these Disney Plus shows that we wanted we talked about the idea of an Obi-Wan series being like Lone Wolf and Cub yeah where he's cruising yeah, around did. with a young baby Luke in his uh-huh. in his space Bjorn yeah <laughs> and we got it a total bait and switch on the Mandalorian yeah and he was this Cool, badass bounty hunter, uh, you know, taking no prisoners except for prisoners. It's, and then all of a sudden... It's adventures in Boba sitting. Yeah! <laughs> so that was great. And, I mean, obviously it became instantly became a thing that you're almost exhausted by. I was totally done before I even watched an episode of it because of the sheer amount of Baby Yoda stuff on the internet. And then, like, Lindsay and I sat down to watch it, and the second he showed up on screen, I was like, oh, I totally get it. But, I mean, it's, I'm really it's... disappointed. I'm really disappointed that you didn't get... The, the surprise reveal of that the way I did because it was a it was there was quite no way it was instant dude like yeah. within episode one right. I mean it was right. 
it was friggin' everywhere. And yeah. I just, I mean, it's so uncommon between spoilers, but also just the production knowledge that we have about things. Mm-hmm. I'm reading what we read, and just the level of transparency now. Yeah. That even when a project is trying so desperately to avoid um, a spoiler being revealed, that they they bait and switch you with complete bullshit, and then right. you get frustrated at the bullshit that they gave you. This was just right out of the blue. Yeah. And yeah. it was momentous. So I and it yeah, was it was... It's one of those events that has a larger impact on the entire world yeah. than it should. Right. Like, it's super weirdly, like, disproportionately popular. It's just so strange. I love the bassinet. Mm-hmm. I love the the egg shape of it. I love that it hovered, that it, it Bluetoothed to his wrist. and That went, was really cool, yeah. Um, and I And also... The imagery about it as a as a as a shelter, mm-hmm. as a literal egg eggshell for him, um, but also as his little his little padded little safety zone. Mm-hmm. It was so much more effective than. And then later on, when he gave up his mark, yeah, then he went back and he saw it in the dumpster. Yeah. Like <laughs> that was, or in the alley, just like thrown away. That was such a vivid image. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really effective. Yeah. And it was specifically because of how much time the camera spent on those long tracking shots of it following him around. Well, and how it's... often you would barely see him peek it out of it. You know? <laughs> well, it's really funny to me, too, because like that's something you've zeroed in on and really picked up on. And I, like, the, the thing that I was, like, hyper-focused on during, like, those first few episodes in particular was just, like... The practical yes. baby effects and the, the tiny little super fine hairs yes. and those like weird little like like veins in his ears that you should not be able to see in a puppet. It's just insane to me. I mean, but also bigger picture, how amazing what a time to be alive as a puppet lover for you, Chris. Oh yeah. Between the Dark Crystal stuff, which I didn't actually get to see, but I we saw still haven't the, seen it either. Yeah, but we saw the photos and stuff. But we know yeah. that they were doing that. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that they were so invested in doing practical effects in this show. Mm-hmm. And even where the prequels and other uh, projects overdo CGI and it's Uncanny Valley and it doesn't look right, right, there's plenty of good CGI out there. There is. That you can make very, very, very convincing aliens in mm-hmm. and things in these projects. But between some of the things they tried to do in the new Star Wars films mm-hmm. with practical effects and with this... It's just fun to watch. You see the foul, the, you see the artifice of it. You can tell that it's a puppet, right? But you love that it's re, that it's got substance to it. Well, and I think that's the difference: is that yes, they can make the most realistic thing in the world out of CG now, and it looks great. It looks exactly like it belongs in that world. But acting against it is a totally different thing, and I think having that physicality of a puppet and like a physical practical effect makes it easier for the actors around it. Yes. And I think that makes a difference. Bryce, I, Bryce Dallas Howard said that she, in her episode, she directed <clears throat> the puppeteers based on emotions and things. So she yeah. she was comfortable enough with their ability to fine-tune it in its reactions to things that she would describe the emotions or the, the mental state of the reactions that she wanted to have. Didn't tell them how to do it. Just said, I want him to be, you know unimpressed by the you know like right only barely interested in the battle in the in the hour <laughs> or you know curious about this or hungry that 
and then and just knew that they could do it. Yeah, and that how effortless that was was kind of shocking to her when she thought about it. Yeah, that's that it was crazy. That versatile. But it is. It's and I've talked to a lot of like even that 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 story about uh, oh god, I just forgot his name, Gandalf uh-huh. um, crying. Because he was so tired of acting against a green screen in those right. later movies. Right. Um, like, he literally... Ian McKellen. Yeah, Ian McKellen. He broke down and had a hard time. He, like, started crying because during the Hobbit films, there was so much more green screen yeah. and CG. Just sitting there on that, a rock. Yeah, yeah, he was acting on like, against a tennis ball versus the physicality of the costumes and everything in the previous ones. And I think that makes a big difference, and I think that's part of why... Baby Yoda is as popular. Like, it just, it sells it. It really feels like he's really there. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. Like, in the Marvel stuff, it was a really big deal that James Gunn got his brother to cobble around around and play Rocket and give them someone to react to that way because it was very tangible. Yeah. Uh, This, to be able to do that with a puppet. If you think about how how cool, granted Yoda's primitive today, looks good, but it's very primitive as a puppet. Oh, yeah. Um, But you think about that style of puppetry. Where there's sticks up the button. It's just, you know, you've got like three people um, manipulating it to create fairly basic right. um, soft movements. Mm-hmm. The jump in sophistication for this puppet. Yeah, it's And crazy. also the other puppetry that we've seen in this show has been really great too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all over the place. Aliens and, yeah, they look great. I think that, um, I think that Nick Nolte's uh, guy, whatever his name is. Uh, Ron Perlman. Yeah, Quill. Oh, yeah, Ron Perlman. Yeah, Quill. 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 Um, he has a very um, rubbery face, mm-hmm. but Ugnaughts have a really rubbery looking yes, face. They do. Absolutely. So actually, it was kind of interesting to see. But <clears throat> again, between the script and how Nick Nolte slash Ron Perlman <laughs> said it, I mean, that I have spoken business. Yeah, just kill. It, it never got tired. I never got tired of that. Yeah, until it was, he was so funny. Until he had been, I had spoken because he had a big blaster <laughs> blast in him. Spoilers, jeez, yeah, Tom. Well, we're we're already there, uh, <laughs> and you finished the season, right? Yeah. Okay, good. That's good news. I should have checked that first. Um, I was I could have probably done without him having a carbon freezing port built into uh, the ship. It doesn't yeah. make any sense to me, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they they said that the ship because here's the thing: his ship's me. super tiny, but also <clears throat> nerding out here, they said that one of the reasons why his ship was useful was that it was Clone Wars era. Mm-hmm. That's why it didn't have all the codes or whatever that in the heist episode that I didn't particularly like with yeah, Bill Burke. Yeah, episode sucked. Um, I, you know, they say, like, it's an older ship, so it doesn't have the same specs, and so it's easier to slip in and out. Uh, okay. So by that token, you can't say that it's more sophisticated than the uh, Empire Strikes Back era stuff. Right. Um, of what was ten years before mm-hmm. this this story or whatever. Yeah, where they needed a whole chamber to do it on. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, like I get that. Like, in the canon, if I remember right, the Cloud City one was actually like a, like a, a food, quick freeze thing that right. they modified for carbonite freeze. Right, it wasn't even and, intended for that yeah, purpose. Yeah. So for so, them to have taken it on in this show, it's sort of it's sort of a conceit that was unnecessary. It was strange. Yeah. Especially given that he dragged him on the ship and chained him to the chair, so. Could have right. taken it back that way. Yeah, it doesn't make any um, sense. Speaking of the ship, 
I love the practical effects of that ship. Yeah, it's it cool. feels really lived in. I feel like I can visualize it all the way around, inside and out, even more than the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, in terms of its spaces. Yeah, it's 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 compact, but there's enough different little compartmentalized areas. That, yeah, yeah, I thought that was really cool. It's a really great design. Yeah, um, and I love and I love the fact. That, I mean, you set the memes aside about him, little baby Yoda flipping switches, and then uh-huh. they make they've tied it to a bunch of songs, which is funny. <laughs> but I thought that the while it was maddening to me that he didn't tie him down more, you know, right. that he had such free reign on that ship, the nuance of him fiddling as a parent mm-hmm. and you as a pet owner, you know, you know full well <laughs> how when the, when that uh, when that other being is messing with things, it could be really aggravating yeah. because it can get, you know, like the cat um, settling in on her desk right on right. top of your computer knocking cups over and things. Mm-hmm. We don't allow that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, <laughs> so I loved, loved, loved how it culminated in spinning off the knob, mm-hmm. this old school shifter knob that looked yeah. like off a short <laughs> shifter for the hyperdrive. Right. And, and, and then him later... That being a symbol from him of acceptance, acceptance. of Baby Yoda yeah. to give him that to play with. That scene where he just subtly handed it to him was so yeah. good. Yeah, I really love um, Cara Dune, uh, Gina Carano's. Character. Oh yeah, yeah, she was great. Um, I like that they're all cagey about what a shock trooper is and mm-hmm. what why she's no longer is she on the run because she because they went too far. Or yeah, something. they went too far, or yeah. did she abandon, or I don't know what. But I think that she's playing a character that is really fun to see. I like that it's not leaning overly heavy, heavily into her physicality. Mm-hmm. Um, I like her a lot. I she's, do too. She's, she's really charming. Yeah, she really is. She's like really effortless. But like the obvious go-to for her is super big, big, because she has mass and she's a yeah, big, she's, bulky yeah. type of musculature. And so the obvious go-to for her is, oh, she's the man-killing, punchy, punch, super punch. badass, yeah. punchy character. Um, but but that character is actually drawn with compassion and a little bit of whimsy. Um, some uh, she's savvy. She's mm-hmm. physically very power very powerful, and she's got uh, combat skills. But that character's job in the script isn't just to be a tank, right? And I like that she yeah. is a tank, yeah. And it's fun that she, you're seeing her doing what she's doing. But I like that that's not the reason she's there. Agreed. I, I I really liked her character a lot. I also really enjoyed the conceit that IG-11 was reprogrammed as a nurse mm-hmm. droid. And the, so good. And the mileage they got out of that. Yeah. Oh, he was so perfect. I loved every aspect of that droid, both before and after the reprogramming. Oh, totally. The um the thing where he just kept, early on, the thing where and he kept trying self-destruct. to self-destruct. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I loved, I loved, once he was a nurse droid, I loved, there was a couple of things that I thought were... Hilarious! I love the thing where he said um, he made a comment to 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 one of the characters, and they said, "What really?" And he's like, "No, this is just a thing I'm doing to attempt to calm yeah, you right. down." I don't right, know what yeah. the reference is now? Just bringing tea or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then I also love the whole. I mean, the nuance of how we came to see that the Mandalorian had softened on his. No droids hatred thing. on droids when that we had that experience where he finally took the helmet off and he says, I'm not a living yeah. being. And and Mando backs off on his abil- on his willingness to let like he's hesitant about, no, you're not gonna sacrifice yourself. Yeah. Um he was reacting to it like a real creature, like yeah. a real sentient being. 
despite himself. And that was a big turning point in how that character right. evolved. Yeah, it wasn't an overnight thing, but it was like, I love to see he was challenged. In that scene, he was challenged about his attitude. Yeah. And you could see him changing even as he struggled with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like that the flashbacks showed why he was so aggressive. Not only that he was adopted into the Mandalorians as a foundling, but also um, that his whole family was killed by those battle droids. Right. Um, and I don't think even then did I think about this, but like a little bit later, maybe after the series wrapped, uh, and I was thinking about how I've never understood Star Wars' relationship with droids. Mm-hmm. They're treated like shit. They're slaves. They're taken for granted and all this other stuff. And then I realized that, and I never understood all the like weird um, casual racism against the droids mm-hmm. and all the weird negative attitudes about them if they're so ubiquitous and helpful. And it never occurred to me until after watching the season that in the 30 years prior, you have a whole generation of people who associate droids as weapons of war used against them yeah, because of the, yeah, the, the boondoggle of the separatist movement right. with droids as soldiers. Right. And that scene of the battle droids just going in and mowing people down was a. I didn't initially trigger it for me, and then I realized it'd be all of a sudden. terrifying. Yeah. That, yeah, because they're leaning so heavily into the whole thing about vilifying the enemy in wartime. Yeah. The, xenoph- the xenophobia and attitude that the Empire generally has and mm-hmm. that their people generally have uh, <clears throat> has always made sense to me. Mm-hmm. But that hatred and fear of droids. Because because the, the the material in Star Wars has always kind of jumped from the end of the Clone Wars stuff right into the Rebellion. Right. And the stuff that you haven't watched deals with that more. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we haven't seen a lot of that. Yeah. So it's easy to forget. It's almost easy to like dismiss all of the, the Clone Wars era stuff. Just like, uh, that's just... Yeah. It wasn't in the original to begin with. And then right. when, it, when it happened, it wasn't very well done. And it's just, it's hard to attach that in a meaningful way to what average people in this universe would experience and right. the kinds of biases they would have. Well, and I think it's... I, I mean, even just looking at the original trilogy, droids, although imparted with a personality, for a lot of people, it, they're clearly just tools. Right. And once tools start expecting things, that's when people start having problems with it. Well, it's like if yeah. Siri was like, are you sure you want that donut, Tom? They've, they've been, there have been whole movies about that, right? Well, but also I think the problem is that there's been a little bit of confusion as they retcon. Mm-hmm. Because they were treated as tools in the original trilogy. And right. that's what made R2-D2 and C-3PO special. Right. Was that they were... They were mouthy. Yeah, but they, they had, a, they had um, personality and sentience, and they had something about them that made you feel like they were relatable. Right. But all the other... But they were attitude to other droids. Right. Right? Where the droids were very snippy with them, and that was always yeah. played for laughs. How like, rude. How rude. Right. Yeah. But then in Retcon... Everything you has saw, an attitude now. Well, no, but I was thinking about, like, for example, in, Han, in the Han Solo movie, there's the robot re- revolution. Right. And so they try to establish that the reason that robots are so subservient in this world is those plugs that are on them. Right. And then, and suggested that all of these droids have sentience and have um, have feelings and rights and things, and they've just been suppressed. Yeah, see, and I don't like that. Yeah, I think that they went yeah. too far with that aspect of it. But I also think that there's a, um, a caste system with droids mm-hmm. that they, really, they haven't really discussed, but it's there. There are droids oh, that definitely. are just doing jobs. Yeah, they're just there doing, are, yeah, there's the, the 
the workers that are literally just assembling things and that kind of thing like we have now. Yeah. There's a step above that, but not much above it. And then there's all the way up to the personality thing. But it's not, and also it's not just based on model. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you have the sentient droids and the non-sentient droids. Right. And that's where the inconsistency in the retconning maybe comes in. Because mm-hmm. when you see C-3PO react to another protocol droid that gives him attitude. Right. Why isn't that droid sentient? Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Or you know, in ongoing material, many of the astromechs have personality. Mm-hmm. Many of the ball units have personality. Yeah, um, and in the Clone Wars uh, stuff, there are droids in the Clone Army, no, in the Separatist Army, that have rank. So there are not just right. I mean, Grievous. Grievous is like some sort of a cyborg, but yeah, right. There's a couple of there are. This is there's this whole cast of tactical droids mm-hmm. that are leaders they're generals well even in the the, the movies the prequel movies at least a couple of them had distinction and separate they names markings and stuff, and stuff yeah. right and then uh, uh, and there's this really great design of a, of, a, of a robot from it appears in Clone Wars and then it appears again in Rebels um, repurposed but it's a gen- it's a droid that's a military leader, mm-hmm. and it has this exotica to it. It almost and I think it might have been because of the 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 race that built it, or like maybe it was like a like sort of like it's a Naboo okay. built droid. But yeah. it had I don't remember exactly what its origins is, but it has like or- some ornamentation in the way some of the design of its armor. I do think it's interesting how few droids have any kind of etching in the metal or right. anything decorative added to them. Right. I think it's super weird that it's all very utilitarian. Like, every, like, even when, aside from color use, all the droids in the Star Wars universe, it's just, oh, here's a sheet of metal, here's a sheet of metal, yeah. here's a sheet of yeah. metal. Yeah. And you would think you would have, like, those executive editions that have that, like, sexy etched Celtic right. nodding or something like well, that. Well, in the cartoons, yeah. you'll see in, in both those two uh, series and also I've seen in Resistance, which is a one set prior to Force Awakens, mm-hmm. there are, you see more pro- in private security droids mm-hmm. and in personal droids, you see many more and some of them are okay. very well. But again, that's part of the retcon problem. Yeah. They're putting more work into it now. Right. It's more sophisticated, so it doesn't quite follow. But then what happened to them all? Yeah. My favorite, but there's another factor to it, which is that there's the suggestion that sometimes maybe the droids become more sentient or more interesting the longer they have been functioning. Mm-hmm. The implication of, you know, if you wipe it, it's going to go back to its root programming, but right. maybe it had, what did you lose when you wiped it? Yeah. Because all the shared ex- the shared experience that created its uh, its personality. Right. right. Its experiences um, that made it who it is. And then my favorite droid in the entire Star Wars universe is K2SO, mm-hmm. Alan Tudyk. That design is amazing. His physical mannerisms are amazing. Yeah. And his sass is amazing. But the implication is that's happened when he was reprogrammed. Right. So, and then uh, one of the, a close second for me, there's a droid in uh, uh, Rebels, which I've told you about before, but it's this... They say it's a supply droid. It's a re- it's an imperial supply droid. So it looks like it has a protocol droid body, mm-hmm. and then it has the head that is vaguely. It's not the two-eyed mm-hmm. one. Oh, not the insectoid. It's, it, one? it's close to that one. It has a single dome, mm-hmm. but then it has that bot that mouth that's very Vaderish. Oh, interesting. It's got the two little nodes here like this and a little triangle, but then it has a single dome for its head. Oh, and they say in Rebels. So what it is is it's a Macquarie design. Okay. Uh, Rebels especially, Clone Wars some, but Rebels especially took a lot of Macquarie stuff 
which okay. is great. And so this is a Macquarie design droid. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the things that happen with this droid in that series um, are, are some of the most profound uh, Star Wars droid stuff that they've ever done. Hmm. So uh, you know, I would love to see a little bit more about some uh, cohesive logic about what what define what defines when the droids have gained that um, yeah versus otherwise yeah I I think that's like you said it's one of the drawbacks of them retroactively adjusting the timeline it's not like they sat down and like okay this is where we are this is where we've been right and these are all the important timeline notes it's clear that they're like oh well this will fit here so sure yeah and there's definitely a flaw to that they don't have five source books of stuff that they are <laughs> jokers so. <laughs> well but so good getting back to the mandalorian what i found compelling about the reprogramming of ig11 mm -hmm. is that he's got personality yeah he's got some wit to him but he does not have a self-preservation instinct that right. goes he wanted to be alive in order to complete its, his programming mm -hmm. about being a nurturing, being, right. protecting someone, healing someone, performing these nursing functions, which can include protection mm -hmm. and defense. But when it came to that sort of the insurmountable odds, right. it was just like, all right, you run that this way, I'm going out here. Do. Yeah. And so I found that to be a very sophisticated question mm -hmm. um, about, well... Where's the line between sentience and self-preservation? Yeah, and how much of that is programmed in by choice by the person that is right. doing the programming? Right. And how much of it is just them flipping a switch to let them have that? Right, because the question yeah. would be is, I mean, it could be argued that his logic at that moment was the best way I can protect the people that I'm supposed to be taking care of is to give them a fighting chance by detonating myself. Right. But on the other hand, that could have been a compassionate mm -hmm. And there's a lot of story to be mined arguing about whether behavior in, a, in an artificial being, mm -hmm. we've seen in other projects, right? More yeah. sophisticated than Star Wars, but is, a, is, is an artificial being uh, showing compassion or emotion or um, you know, higher cognitive thought, is it really? Or, is, or it, is it programming? Or is it told to right. show the approximation of compassion. Yeah. yeah. The, fake, the fake laugh. Yeah. Um, you know, but especially, you know, as we have passed through the, <laughs> we've passed through the mouth of AI being the answer to all those stories. Mm -hmm. And now it's become, well, if, you know, if you program a sufficiently sophisticated AI in emulating, where is the draw? Where is the line between emulating an emotion and having the emotion? Just like, where is the line between, it's a sentient creature. You shouldn't destroy it. And it's non-sentient creature. It's just a, a tool. Right. Melted down. Yeah. Speaking of melting it down, mm -hmm. the fa the uh, the foundry uh, shaper Mandalorian that Emily. pitched a stormtrooper. Yeah, Emily uh -huh. pitching a stormtrooper right into the fires. Yeah. was amazing. Yeah, oh yeah, she was, was absolutely amazing. She was great. I love the armor. She was super cool. She was at our show. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I loved the. Um, I mean. I like the idea that the Mandalorian... So, so having not seen the other continuity about this uh, culture, it may not be as apparent, but this is new, that mm -hmm. they're hiding underground. I assume so, yeah. They're only one at a time can be visible, so you never can track them and know where they are. 
Um, this Which thing about having, doesn't really sell for me, right? Because they look different. in a town that tiny, yeah, that, I know. and they all look different. Right. But all right. But also <laughs> helmets on all the time uh-huh. in the Clone Wars and in Rebels. They were they had helmets off plenty of times. Right. They are very. It's always been the armor is the thing. Okay. And your honor is in your armor and all this other shit. But okay. That's like many other Earth cultures that we have that mm-hmm. concept. This is new. I'm never allowed to take my face off. I understand. It's for a good reason. You, 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 got, you got those fleshy under 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 things. So don't don't make fun of those. What I think is interesting. You see my face. My hand right here. I was thinking of all the little um, li- in uh, science. They, they're called lipids. Right? These little globs of fat. Little... Okay. So look. Here's where I'm. Here's where I'm going with this. I love how we've got multiple character types in the Mandalorian. That are hidden by masks, uh-huh. and how their uh, behavior and and mannerisms make them very different. Mm-hmm. So I like that the Mandalorians in the show have a cocky, proud aspect right. to them when they're yet fully armored, helmet on. Mm-hmm. I like that the stormtroopers, except for Moff Gideon's at the end, that are more you know kind of cleaned up. Right. But in general, particularly the ones that the client that the client had that are all grungy, yeah. their armor's beat up, and they had this weird, they had fallen out of their their training, and they were kind of yeah. lilting and kind of... Kind of scuzzy. Kind of scuzzy, yeah. and they're kind of leaning in a way that looks kind of like they're edgy. Yeah. I loved those merc stormtroopers, yeah. right? Again, fully enclosed, you never see their face, but they're... they're Radiating a lot of personality in their posture, just purely from posture, right? Yeah, and then and obviously the uh, the armor was like that, right? I just think that's really cool. It is. It's, it's not neat. just him that's the man with no face. Yeah, it's a lot of these characters. That were yeah, like that. the the conceit didn't work in the environment they decided to place all of those guys in, but I really like that. You mean the aspect. Mandalorians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do really like that. I think it's cool. There's a lot of you may have read online. Did you read some of the backstory about Not some of these? All. The 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 um, the Mandalorians that come to his aid as a child and rescue mm-hmm. him, they're wearing the colors of a clan of Mandalorians that earlier in the timeline were the warlike ones that were trying to bring back a war culture to at a time when the the uh, leadership of the Mandalorians was leaning towards peace. Okay, so there's a whole lot of stuff. About Mandalore and how the Empire went and basically destroyed the infrastructure of that planet and the surrounding planets. So it's not just Mandalorians are from Mandalore, but it's also mm-hmm. a culture of people of gotcha. different creeds that are in that group. Um, and how they were destroyed by the meddling of the Empire, but also their own internal factions. Gotcha. So what's interesting is the ones that rescued Kim mm-hmm. are the were a warlike clan that was pushing really hard and attempting... In uh, Clone Wars, had had been attempting to seize power again in Mandalore. Okay. So by the time of his of his childhood experience, which would be before, you know, somewhere in the early days of the Empire, mm-hmm. things had changed, right? Or something we don't know. And this new season of Clone Wars, this final season they're coming out with, is going to talk about what's called the Siege of Mandalore. Mm. Some of the some of the secret history of what happened to those people. Interesting. I liked that they used him getting the jetpack, you know, the elephant in the room of the yeah. missing jetpack, and yeah. him getting one, and then that way he can mimic with Yoda the same, baby Yoda the same thing that happened with him and the the one that rescued him as a kid. Right. right? The same sort of thing. 
Um, but what I really fucking thought was rad as hell was when Moff Gideon showed up. Um, I didn't need a, a TIE fighter that folds yeah, its wings. And I've even seen a couple of different um, references, even one from a production person who said, finally we know how a TIE fighter lands. You're like, no. Because we've, we've seen, seen them land. It just they have a there. ladder yeah. that comes down, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it's not beyond the realm of... of um, appropriateness to this world right. that certain leaders have special tie Well, fighters. and it would make sense that they have specialized ADATs and ATSTs. Why don't they have, like, like surface landing tie fighters? Right. I get it. I buy it. It doesn't make a ton of sense because you've seen them, but if they're working in an environment where they need to be able to get out and right onto the land, it makes sense that it would land like well, that. Well, I mean, and again, it goes back to that ret- retcon problem. So, Right. You know, in the original movies, they made it, they added new tech mm-hmm. in every new movie to sell more toys, and that was right. fine. Then you have a problem like, so Vader was the only one with a special Tie Fighter yeah. originally, and then it started to expand, and then others had special right. types of equipment. Rogue One threaded the needle. They introduced a new Tie Fighter, which was that one that has one blade. Right, it's a Tie Interceptor, oh, not an yeah. Interceptor. It's a Tie Defender. I don't know what it is. It has, it has like two kind like of pointy, pointy, two pointy yeah. uh, blades um, of solar panel. Yeah. Uh, and but then at the same time they reused the at ats, but they had them as cargo, you know, non yeah. snow. So they had cargo yeah. modules, and so you saw their. And again, they showed death troopers, but then they showed them running and sand troopers or mm-hmm. whatever they are, shore troopers. Yeah. But then they also had them interacting with regular troopers. So that's the right way to do it. You fold it yeah. in. Because then you can rationalize that you, even though it never existed before, you can rationalize right. you never saw it because it wasn't the right conditions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that in the end of Mandalorian, you get Death Troopers, mm-hmm. which we haven't seen since Rogue One, but are fucking rad, and you yeah. wonder where they've been this whole time. Right. Well, if the implication is they are like the black ops security for major figures mm-hmm. in the Empire, now it makes sense. Well, maybe we didn't see them on the Death Star because... You didn't need him. You didn't yeah. need him. Yeah. Vader didn't need that, right? Right. Um, so I thought that was cool. But but then again, you get Moff with a funny TIE fighter. There's really right. no reason for the funny TIE fighter. Yeah, it was just I to agree. do it. Yeah. Now, Moff... So Giancarlo Esposito coming down at the very end, I was waiting for it. I was excited for it. It was very surprising that he sort of plowed through and the client was not even that important in the end yeah, like he was yeah. he was taken out in that sequence um, which was almost disappointing I think that was more disappointing than uh, Nick Nolte Perlman yeah. uh, going because I just loved I never would have thought that Werner Herzog would be <laughs> the whole the whole show to me just he's, listening to him say stuff he's so funny I, I have um, a a faux documentary show that he did that's like all about looking for the Loch Ness Monster and he plays like he plays himself basically yeah. in the film, and it's it's one of those like weird meta things that is super underwatched. But he's his personality and like his affect is so funny, it's so specific. Yeah, I heard, I read, or heard um, an anecdote that he was so you know, he says auteur, right? Mm-hmm. So he was really engaged in this project because he sees it as. The modern myths, right? And so he's really enga- he's really interested in what they're doing, taking it seriously in the Mandalorian. Yeah, this TV show version of Star Wars, <laughs> more so than uh, than general Star Wars. Like he just saw yeah. it as this is the modern myth. But the anecdote that I 
remember is he was so engaged with how they were using Baby Yoda. Did you hear this one? Yeah. Where they were they started doing sh- doing shots in case they were going to use it digitally, and when he found mm-hmm. out what they were doing, he was just, you're cowards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't use this, you're ruining it. <laughs> you're cowards. Um, I just thought that was uh, absolutely amazing. I like yeah. the line. I have a couple of notes here that I just, I really liked, um, uh, I like the fact that there was different currencies, and that the imperial currency was devaluing. Yeah. Even though it was still used, he was hedging his bets on Yeah, I thought that was really smart. Um, I really like the differentiation between the client being very well-dressed and the stormtroopers being all natty, mm-hmm. which is very cool. And I like the the nuance to the uh, scientist that he had with him that was anxious to get a hold of Baby Yoda and then was doing something to him. Right. Um, having the, the affect of a sort of trapped scientist. Yeah, creepy mad scientist type thing. Yeah. Um, I did subsequently look at, look up. I heard this and then I back-checked it and it... He is wearing Camino symbol on his clothing, mm. and Camino was the planet that was doing all the cloning. Oh, okay. So, what do you think the Baby Yoda thing is? I have absolutely no idea. Do you I mean think... I don't know if it's just a, a force related thing or what? It's, I mean, maybe it's one of those things where that type of species, whatever it is, is just naturally super strong in the force. See, that's what I'm wondering about. Except for Yaddle, who retired. Right. But, well, but uh, she was on the council, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it, so so that's the thing. It begat so many questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, being force sensitive isn't inherited, right? There are cases where it is, obviously, mm-hmm. because the extra precious Skywalkers and everybody else. <coughs> were, the Midichlorians, you, know, you mean? Uh, well, yes, <laughs> I know. But the but the idea is that you know if these force sensitive creatures have to be trained. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that he that Baby Yoda has so much power so young, right? But it does stand to reason that was such a um, a mysterious species by design. Lucas never wanted it to find. You never see another right. one until he's granted Filoni, his heir apparent, the right to do this, right? <laughs> but it's interesting if that species is just inherently super force sensitive. Mm-hmm. Are they trying to clone it and then control it? Right. Are they trying to steal? Please don't let it be midichlorians. But yeah. are they trying to do something? Because they're doing. It looked like they were doing diagnostics or scans. Or but also, are they trying to find more of them or right. eliminate them? Or I mean, there's there's a lot of possibilities. Right. And is it a clone of genetic material that they got from Yoda? Right, <laughs> because. That would have been, that he's would, 50 years old, so he couldn't see, be a clone. Yeah, so that wouldn't make any sense, because yeah. he's 50 years old, which means Yoda was still in hiding right. for a significant amount of that time. Well, not necessarily, though. Because I guess 50 years, that would have been pre-Anakin fall. Right, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right. Uh, fifty. Yeah, 50 years in the timeline suggests <clears throat> that he would have been born... Before the Kaminoans mm-hmm, were, climbing. or at least, well, they never, I don't recall if they explained in Clone Wars whether they had accelerated growth. They did. They did. They, they did, did specifically have when Obi-Wan visits Kamino. We just rewatched all of the movies. Mm. Um, they talk about how it's a, an accelerated growth program, okay. and the only one that aged normally was Boba. Well, that makes sense because uh, we've seen other. In the like in the cartoons and stuff, we've seen other young 
references to younger clones mm. as well. And then we've seen references to older clones who have aged, who have survived the war. Oh, There's a major character in Rebels that is a veteran. Mm. Looks like me now. He's bald, his yeah. beard, a little bit of a paunch. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's really, yeah, that is interesting to me. I don't know what's going on with the Yoda. But I almost, I really like not knowing. Yeah, me too. I like knowing that you're not sure whether what they're up to, but you figure it doesn't have his interests yeah. in mind. And because the scientist was like, they want him, they want him alive, and the client's like, well, right, <clears throat> you know, either way. Yeah, um, I had a couple of. <laughs> I mean, I won't. Okay, just there's just a He's lot of something. His his Moleskine of yes, <laughs> of tome, of my tome of uh, writings, my scribbles. There there were just a couple of lines in the second episode that I had written down specifically because I liked them so much. One of them was that um, he said, the Mandalorian said the weapons are part of my religion, mm-hmm. uh, which I really liked. And the other thing was there was this part that I really liked when he said, "Do they understand this?" And wow, and lit him up with the flamethrower, the oh. Jawas. <laughs> that was really great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so the uh, one last thing I was going to mention was I really liked. Moff Gideon, I liked his tone. I love the use of him having so much information about everybody mm-hmm. as that chilling thing that... Because they had made it secret what his Mandalorian's uh, identity was, but it really wasn't right. important. He right. was nobody. It was just about... That's a weighted thing to say right now with Star Wars. but <laughs> It really wasn't important. It was that he knew who he was, and that guy was an orphan. Mm-hmm. So that means that he knows enough about his history to attract it back. That's just how he handles everything. He's got that attention right. to detail. It also means, since this is the Imperial Remnants, and there's multiple factions of Imperials, he's got the data. Yes. And a lot of them don't. Yeah. Because in the Star Wars lore, after the fall of the Empire, mm-hmm. a lot of the infrastructure flees for the Outer Rim. Right. Which is, or the unknown regions beyond this area, which is the Outer Rim. Right. Um, and then the ones that are still on Coruscant are basically weeded out and destroyed. So I don't know. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. He's definitely... One of only, uh, one of many factions of mm-hmm. post-imperial remnants, and that's what I think is fun. He's trying to figure out where he fits and what his objectives are. Yeah, yeah. He was an <clears> interesting <throat> addition. Now you saw that after his Tie Fighter crashed, he popped out of the, he With carved the, himself the stupid out. Stupid-looking dark saber, unless you uh-huh. watched the cartoon. That's right. So, <laughs> for all the people who didn't watch the cartoon, that was just like, well, that's an interesting lightsaber, and why does he have it? No, it was a stupid-looking lightsaber, okay. if you didn't know. <laughs> but for people who have watched the cartoon, that is a symbolic weapon mm-hmm. for the people of Mandalore. Oh, okay. Which means he was the moth in charge. He was a moth put in, in charge of Mandalore. At some point that we haven't seen. It is like their holiest of holy weapons mm. the first mandalorian jedi a thousand years prior built that sword and it has been and it had been very few mandalorian jedi since or if any and they've always had it in like a vault and then in certain bits and pieces in their time in, the, in their timeline um warlords have taken it and by claiming it usurped control of the people right like it's That's it's it's the kingmaker weapon Right, so that that tease is a lot bigger deal if you've watched the cartoon. Correct, and we have this new season of Clone Wars that's going to talk about a lot of these things. But the the implied uh, seriousness of him having that is it's a non Mandalorian wielding it in the first place. Right, him having it means that the Mandalorian people are fucked. Well beyond just the fact that these ones that are in hiding that they, that they are a disenfranchised. There's right. diaspora They're happening with the Mandalorians. Now. Yeah. But the fact that their holiest of holy objects 
is in the hands of hmm. a non-Mandalorian who's winging it around. Interesting. That's the thing that I thought was the most interesting about it is that what it hmm. implies to the about the death of the culture uh, uh, into which the protagonist character has wedded his life to. Right. Yeah. So you didn't have to have all that backstory to know that there was something weird about it. Or stupid, well, as you said. Well, it just, it, it, the problem with it is it looked very CG, mm-hmm. and it didn't look like I've never liked the look of it. Yeah. I've it's, never liked the look really of it. It's really jarring, and they'd already shown the vibroblades right. earlier, which I thought looked pretty good, but they also looked a little, like, yeah. a little janky. Yeah. And this kind of fell into that same category, and not knowing any kind of backstory to it, you're like... Well, was that a lightsaber? Was it just a weird-looking vibroblade thing? What's going on with that? Yeah. And, like, there was an extra import added to it that it was one of the few times in it that implied a needed backstory. Yeah. That if you didn't have it, didn't make any sense. Yeah, but to me, I thought that it worked on this on a level that if you didn't know what it meant, it just was like, well, that's interesting. I want to know mm-hmm. what that is. It's different mm-hmm. because you know general Star Warsy stuff. You know what a lightsaber is supposed to look like. You right. know it doesn't look like that. That right. tells you that says I want to know what that is. Mm-hmm. But if you do know anything about it, then you're like, holy shit, there's a lot more to that. So yeah. to me, I thought that was an interesting way of continuing. Yeah, it wasn't uh, upsetting or anything. It was just it was a little less convincing than yeah. I would have liked it to have been. Now, do you think that Ming Na Wen's character uh, Fennec Shan is dead? I don't think so. Yeah, I I don't think it was Boba Fett. That's the thing that cracks me up. That doesn't make any sense to me. Much drama about the jingle jingle on the foot that came down. That was as much just spaghetti western as anything. Well, and it doesn't make any sense to me because the person that walks up to her has a full cape that hits right at ankle length, and Boba's always just had that one over the shoulder cape that only hits about like mid calf. You know who has a full cape? Lots of people. Yeah, uh, Moff Gideon has a full cape. <laughs> no, Lando wears half capes. That's true. Man, uh, well, Moff Gideon had a full cape. Yeah, but he this he wasn't dressed all in black. The one that walked up to her. Yeah, I don't know. So I don't know. Well, I'm hoping that she's gonna be she's gonna come back in the next season as a Mando hunter. See, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, so uh, well, that was my last two, which was oh, okay. is she dead and was it Boba? No, and no. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was... I was so bummed that this was over. I know it was excellent. Uh, we we blew through it because I think we'd seen we started watching it either just as the last episode came out or just before, yeah. and like it went so fast. Um, and they're short episodes too. They I are. wish they were longer. They were it, like inconsistent lengths too. <laughs> right. Like a second episode was only like twenty four minutes, and we're like, oh, they're only a half hour. Let's just watch them all. Yeah. And then some of them were like forty five minutes, fifty three minutes. But they all felt like they needed to be longer. But at the same time, I really liked their their consistency right. and like very consistent okay, given how many Ooh. different visions there were. Yeah, how many different people playing in that sandbox. Um, speaking of that, yes. the end credits I thought were interesting. They were me. amazing. I liked how you could tell at times. Oh, they've cast this person. Oh, they haven't cast that person right. yet. And this is what they expect it to be. And it was really... There were some inconsistencies. Some of them were a little too photoshoppy. Right, right. But some of that, like, in-credit art was really cool. Well, talk about, like, this being... Other than using stingers, it's like one of the best examples of making the credits 
something that you actually want to stick around and yeah. watch. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Not just wait through, but actually watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about uh, different directors and creators and how they influence the tone, and it's still been the same tone, but you could tell the different people that were involved. Right. Did you find that Taika Waititi's uh, Stormtrooper stuff, the Scout Trooper stuff, did uh-huh. you find that jarring, or did you enjoy it in the context of it? I thought the violence was harder than it needed to be. It was a little bit shocking. Yeah. The punching? Like, like to me, that seemed... You mean the Yoda violence, or, yeah. the, or the Scout Trooper violence? Them punching the Yoda. It was shocking, wasn't yeah, it shocking? Yeah, it was, it was way more over the top than I expected it to be for it. Like, like straight up punching the bag seemed a little silly to me. I was so down because that was one of my favorite Imperial things was mm-hmm. those scout troopers on those hovers. Yeah. And so to have those speeder bikes or whatever, to have them there delighted me. To have them like bored waiting around, they can't do yeah. anything until he comes. I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was uh, Adam Polly and uh, what's his face? Uh, yeah, Maybe. what's his name? Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, what's his name? In it, but I liked it. I was able to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it struck me about was that um, Lord and Miller were fired from Han Solo for being mm-hmm. too spontaneous and whimsical in the Star Wars universe. This made me really want to see their Han Solo. I would have been very curious to see. Yeah, I, right. I like Solo. I, I'm one of those I guys too. that liked I did it from too. day one. But yeah, I would have been so curious to see what that was. I can totally handle some... I mean, original Star Wars had humor in it. Oh, yeah. But I was totally fine with it. Mm-hmm. I've read people saying that they felt like that was jarring. It was a pulpy adventure thing. Yeah. And, I mean, the original Star Wars has humor from, like, scene one. I mean, really. Like, them, oh my, and running around. and yeah. I mean, it's it has a lot of humor in it. It does. I Honestly, the only time that any of the Star Wars humor, like, struck not home... When we were rewatching everything, was episode one, two, like those had some bad points in it. Well, but... Jar Jar, the Jar Jar Binks stuff and the uh, basic battle droids. God, so I was are just inane. Such a Jar Jar apologist for the longest time, and then I rewatched it this time, and he was unwatchable. I could, I'm, I like Ahmed Best a lot. I yeah. genuinely think he's a cool guy. But his character in that is so insufferably annoying. And it's just crazy. So we rewatched it for the magazine. And uh. we binged it in the machete style. So we started with Rogue One. Then you watch, uh, you follow the Skywalker story. Mm-hmm. And the whole conceit of it is that watching it in the order that it's numbered, it takes the focus off of Skywalker and puts it on Vader. And makes Vader the most important character because you start out learning about Vader's origins. Sure. So instead, you watch Rogue One, which is wasn't there when they first created the sequence, but Rogue right. One's so amazing that you right. have to yeah, watch it yeah. first. Um, and then you watch the first two movies. Then once it's revealed that Darth Vader is Luke's father, you flash back to see the origins of Vader. And so it changes the focus and the import of that. That's interesting. Then you go into Return of the Jedi... And you watch it until Solo dies. And then you flash back to see Solo's origins. Oh, that's cool. Then you finish up with the sequence, which we still haven't seen the most recent film. But it was really interesting watching it that way. That was really cool. And you, I would skip episode one mm-hmm. completely. It doesn't need to be seen. It's completely unimportant. 
Like the Phantom Menace? Yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah. skip Phantom Menace and dive right into 2 and 3 for the flashback sequence. But watching it that way gave a completely different perspective. It was really interesting. But by not watching the Phantom Menace, you don't get to see uh, Jabba getting a Puffin Muffin. See, the, the biggest, the, wor- <laughs> the, the worst part about missing Phantom Menace is that Liam Neeson's great. Yeah. Uh, I, so, you know, the thing is, and I know this is partly by my age, but, and again, I know you, until you just sit down and fucking watch them, I know you're going to be super obnoxious. Everybody gets super tired of you hounding me every single time. No, they love it. They root for me to to annoy you about this. But look, the bottom line is, especially when you infill Mm -hmm. with as much time as you spend with Anakin slowly changing in the cartoon, Mm -hmm. the sense of betrayal that happens in Revenge of the Sith, in the movies, it's barely emotional because they're so cardboard cut out. And it's so absurdly abrupt. That he's like, oh, I'm a little manipulated, and then oh, there's the you know dying from you from, know from pain, from heart pain, and then yes, but at the same time, there are some interesting notes rewatching it that struck home better for me than I expected it. How to. so? I I think Palpatine plays the whole father figure thing yeah. much better than you expect him right, to. In it. Right. I think that there I are some that. scenes where I was legitimately like. Oh, that was actually pretty slick. I think Ian McDiarmid's a fucking great actor. He is. Well, I, he, he was dropping that Plagueis stuff. Yeah. Totally planting the seeds on him that, oh, there's things you love that you mm-hmm. can't protect. Yeah. And maybe Super sly. A, yeah. And the other thing that really... Maybe with a vampire. You yeah. Know? Like, the other thing that really struck me re-watching it is how sad the Jedi Order is in those prequels. Right. How you can tell that it's a it was a force to be reckoned with. Yes. And that they're in their decline during this right. sequence where their power's not as effective, they're not as useful anymore. Right. You can tell that like Death Jedi by a thousand Council's cuts, kinda sad. Death by a thousand cuts literally. Yeah. Right? They've been yeah. they've been uh it's like a it's like a, a statement on a lot of um religious orders that have become part of the governmental structure right and have lost their edge and their purpose right like right. They, they were uh fooled by a false sense of security mm-hmm. right this whole thing where they i i i did find it very interesting and again i'm sorry but the clone wars cartoon goes into it in a lot more detail mm-hmm. but the idea that they should never have been generals in an army yeah, they, yeah. and that was something that palpatine encouraged right to set them up to fail yeah they yeah. did not have any per- reason to be there and the clones were Leading them or uh, following it, following them into battle, mm-hmm. and then, and then of course they could be betrayed right. by them. But they had no business doing that, and it was partly a way to destroy the mystique of them. They were already right. in decline for so long. Right, long like, they had been reclusive because of they had been kind of sucked into the governmental structure, and well, we didn't and see them. And it in the movies, it definitely gives off the vibe that it's almost one of those things where their powers weren't as strong right. anymore. Right. And they were kind of withdrawing so that people didn't realize that. Yep. And between that and the way the government was using them, like, that was a lot more interesting than I expected it to be. Totally. And I... It was... It was very... Uh, is it, was it Gaiman that did the book where, like... Or... Oh God, what was it that... Where 
the gods started losing their power because people didn't believe in them. American Maybe gods? that's just Santa Claus. I don't know. Oh. But where, like... Merlin. Was it Merlin? The TV show Merlin. Okay, so, so they had a thing where the gods started losing their powers and they weren't as power like mm. valuable because people didn't believe in them, in them yep. anymore and yet the only way they could stage anything to become believed in and become more powerful was to have their power kind of thing yeah and so it was like kind of a, a slow descent into madness because there's no way you can hit that point right and i thought that was really interesting watching it over again and seeing those little aspects, they're still not great movies. But there's but... a problem. I mean, there's a fundamental problem in the timeline of the movies. I understand why it's structured that it's only thirty years of time that passes it's between all, yeah, the Clone that's Wars way and, the, and the Empire. Short. Yeah, there's this idea because I've always struggled with the idea that um, if you apply it to our modern a modern parallel, there's not the same communication. Um, there's not uh, news reels and right. a centralized. Um, uh, information system until the Empire, the Rebels shows that the Empire is doing propaganda constantly to all mm. the worlds, but in Star Wars, it's not like everybody has iPads, right? right. People right. are really disconnected from what's going on, yeah. and there's a real provincial attitude in the planets that are that are being uh, used for resources versus right. the planets that, that are in Inner Rim. And the books, by the way, that I've been reading a lot of those books, they talk a lot about the politics of the Inner Rim Planets versus the Outer Rim and the Hicks versus the city folk, and it's that whole thing, right? It is interesting in a world like that where you can travel from planet to planet to planet. The yeah. planets are all very self-contained. Well, and also, and that's the thing, that they all have one uh, ecosystem and they only have mm-hmm. one city. And there's like, you know what I mean? Like they're right. really just cities on a map, right? Yeah. But, and, and the books do describe that sometimes those hyperspace jumps mm-hmm. are a series of jumps in hyper lanes and it may actually take <coughs> 30 hours to get there. Like right. it's, the movies made it seem like it was instant, but in fact, it does yeah. take time. That said, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And in the, and and part of that is again the retcon of going backwards and not being able to be fine, really tight on your timeline. Right. But the canon is that by the time that you're you're well into the empire, mm-hmm. right? So twenty years into a formal imperial rule and the dis- dissolution of the senate, right? Uh, the average person thinks that the Jedi are a myth, right? And it's and that it, doesn't make any sense now it, to a point, except for when you think about how under a fascist regime mm-hmm. where the where the flow of information is tightly controlled, propaganda right. is used heavily, mm-hmm. um, freedom of speech is gone, and you're discouraged from educating yourself. Right. That's where it starts to make sense. And the problem is they've always done an end run. They have never really shown the way in which the Empire slowly isolates right. and then homogenizes all the cultures that they dominated. And the books have done a better job of showing that. Right. But it always bothered me that you would have within someone's lifetime, not just their practical lifetime, but their right. experiential lifetime, you had laser swords and powers, and, oh, that's a myth. Absolutely. And the only way yeah. it works is that you re- is is what, we go, what we're touching on with the Jedi Council. Yeah. That the Jedi were so isolated. They were pulling themselves together. They were all on this one planet. They're all standing, yeah, yeah, they're all sitting around in Coruscant being mentors. Mm-hmm. And that the Jedi temples on these different planets were very insular and monastic. Right. And that there were a lot of stories about them, but that average people, the 
billions upon billions of souls in the universe yeah. never, ever, ever saw a never Jedi. Never saw a Jedi, yeah. The fact that the films were so focused on the Skywalkers made it seem like Jedis are everywhere. Right. But in the parts per million principle, right. no one ever saw them. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, anyway, I don't remember exactly how we... Oh, it was you were going back through the way that you watched the yeah, movies yeah. and how it relates to that. So... Um, anyway, so that's that's interesting. I do. I yeah. really do want you to watch those later. I, we're going to get to them eventually. It's. I mean, I they're only, on our list. It's just we didn't have a way to see them because yeah. they were. Well, and it's they still were frustrating. All on Disney, so. It's still frustrating. They're not all in one place, and it, yeah. it can be difficult. I have almost all of the Clone Wars and Rebels um, physically recorded that I can get you. But like, like we went to go watch them like back. Seven yeah. years ago, when you first started handing me about it, yeah, and like, like you could find like one season here and part of a season oh, totally. here, and so like I think most of them are on Disney Plus now. Yeah, well, um, you know, I mean, the thing is, like uh, the Star Wars Resistance, which mm-hmm. is that weird cell shade yeah, animation it looks one, very odd. Yeah, the first season's on Disney Plus, but the second season's only on Disney now, and I no longer have that because I don't so, have so cable. That's so weird. Because the licensing yeah. rules, even within a Disney company, yeah. are such that they haven't moved it over. And it drives me nuts. Yeah. Because it should just all be in one place forever. Right. But the only reason I hound you is that I was such a skeptic for so long. Mm-hmm. And then, having watched through it, I was like, oh my god. There's yeah. actually some there there that's Yeah, better. I've heard it's great. Yeah. It's just, it's probably something that, like, once we've run out of other stuff, we'll throw it on our TV and watch it at breakfast kind of thing. But, but yeah, it's it's on the list. It's just... Well, let me just say this. Grab your rum and coke over there. I don't have a rum and coke. Well, grab your whiskey and coke. Bottle. Go, go have that whiskey and coke. <laughs> just, just grab the whiskey. Let me just say, let us share this libation to celebrate the end of our life day. Shut, well, no, it's celebration. Let us, let us have a libation to celebrate the closure of our shared narrative. That was Werner Herzog's fav- best line oh, in all of The Mandalorian. Okay. I'm like, I have no right idea Right before they shot up the bar. <laughs> right before they shot up the bar. Let us have a... Let's, say, let's have a libation to celebrate the closure of our shared... Then they just death troopered the hell out of the entire bar. So that was Mandalorian season That was Mandalorian. One. Excellent. Plus, plus good. Plus, plus good. Yes. Would see again. Yes. Will probably see again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sweet. And with that, I leave you. Roger, Roger. This is never going to work.